Section 35 of A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Sherman, Jr., Washington, D.C. A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 8, Spheres of Action, Chapter 1, Jews, Part 7. After this narrow escape, there came a gleam of promise. Few members of the Society of Jesus at that time were more distinguished than Antonio Vieira, who had earned the name of the Apostle of Brazil. He had long regarded the new Christians with compassion, and had urged Joao IV not to only abolish confiscation, but to remove the distinctions between them and the old Christians. He had made enemies, and the Inquisition readily undertook his punishment. His writings in favor of the oppressed were condemned as rash, scandalous, erroneous, savoring of heresy, and well adapted to pervert the ignorant. After three years of incarceration, he was penanced in the audience chamber of Coimbra, December 23, 1667, and his sympathy for the victims of the Holy Office was sharpened by his experience of its unwholesome prisons where he tells us that five unfortunates were not uncommonly herded in a cell nine feet by eleven, where the only light came from a narrow opening near the ceiling, where the vessels were changed only once a week, and all spiritual consolation was denied. Then, in the safe refuge of Rome, he raised his voice for the relief of the oppressed, in numerous writings in which he characterized the Holy Office of Portugal as a tribunal which served only to deprive men of their fortunes, their honor, and their lives, while unable to discriminate between guilt and innocence. It was known to be holy only in name, while its works were cruelty and injustice, unworthy of rational beings, although it was always proclaiming its superior piety. The Society of Jesus could scarce fail to resent the affront put upon one of its most distinguished members. It was still a power in Portugal, and it made its influence felt. The new Christians took heart and, in 1673, they made an organized effort to gain relief. They asked to have the procedure of the Inquisition modified to that of Rome and, in order that the new system might have a fair start, that a general pardon be granted to those under trial. The extent of the considerations offered for these very moderate concessions shows how desperate was the condition of the sufferers, for they proposed to place within a year 4,000 troops in India, and then yearly to send 1,200 men, or 1,500 in case of war, besides an annual payment of 20,000 cruzados and various other considerable contributions, including some important matters which there were reasons for keeping secret. Against this proposal, the Inquisition protested in two elaborate remonstrances, revealing the temper in which it habitually exercised its powers. It could find no words too strong to describe the wickedness of the new Christians, whose invincible adherence to their errors showed that punishment and not pardon was the only means to be employed. In place of mitigating the laws, they should be sharpened, as heresy was steadily increasing, and to ask for the Roman procedure was scandalous, and in itself worthy of punishment. The regent was told that he had no power to overthrow the laws and he was threatened, on the one hand, with an uprising of the people, and on the other with an appeal to the pope. In fine, the proposed reform would bring desolation on the land and result in Portugal becoming a Judea. On the other side, the arrangement was warmly supported by many ecclesiastics, to which Jesuit influence doubtless contributed. 
not only did the Archbishop of Lisbon favor it, but also thirty masters and doctors of theology, the professors of the University of Coimbra, seven ministers of the Inquisition, and many men of high position among both the regular and the secular clergy. The regent and his council gave it their approval, and the matter was referred to the Pope for his decision. The debate was thus transferred to Rome, where, in 1674, both sides submitted their arguments to the commission of cardinals formed for the purpose. The advocates of the new Christians presented a scathing indictment of the Inquisition, doubtless one-sided and exaggerating, and yet affording an insight into the abuses inevitable when secret and irresponsible power fell into unworthy hands. The great mass of victims, they asserted, was fervent and loyal Christians, who either were burnt for denying Judaism or obtained reconciliation by falsely confessing. A case occurring only the year previous, 1673, at Evora, was that of two nuns burnt as negativas. One of them had lived for forty years in her nunnery, with unblemished reputation and filling all the official positions in turn. The confessors who heard her before the auto were overcome by the fervent piety which she manifested and, when the procession was formed, she recognized among the penitents her own sister and nieces, who had saved their lives by denouncing her. She pardoned them and made a most exemplary end, invoking Christ with her last breath as the garret was applied. Indeed, it was the evidence of many confessors that the greater part of those to whom they ministered at the autos were true and fervent Christians, and this was confirmed by the University of Evora, by Padre Manuel Diaz, S.J., confessor of the crown prince and numerous ecclesiastics of high standing. The trade of false witness was a thriving one, both for gain and the gratification of enmity. There were regular associations of perjurers, who made a living by levying blackmail on rich new Christians, accusing those who refused their demands, so that the unfortunate class lived in perpetual terror and purchased temporary safety by compliance. The matter was reduced to a fine art. The accusing witness would give a fictitious name and address, so that the accused could never recognize and disable him. Sometimes, indeed, when additional evidence was necessary, a witness would change his name and garments and give the required corroborative testimony. As an illustration of the arbitrary abuse of power, allusion was made to a notorious case occurring at Evora in 1643. According to custom, a student of the Jesuit college was appointed to superintend the market. The servant of an inquisitor desired to buy a load of honey, in order to retail it at an advance, but the student interposed because it had already been purchased for the use of the college and would only let the servant have enough to supply his master's table. For this, he was imprisoned, tried, required to abjure, and penanced as unsound in the faith. When the sentence was read in the presence of a number of ecclesiastics, the professor of theology, a Jesuit of high standing, appealed to the Holy See, to which one of the inquisitors replied that, from that holy tribunal, the only appeal was to the Holy Trinity, and the unlucky appellant was gowled and severely handled. Jesuits were not accustomed to such treatment. The matter was laid before Urban VIII, who summoned the inquisitors to appear before him, but, in the confusion of the war with Spain, the affair blew over. The statements as to confiscation explain the tenacity of the Inquisition in maintaining its position. The Crown supported the Inquisition and was entitled to the results of its industry, but obtained little. The sequestrations were in the hands of the tribunals during the trials, which were protracted for five, ten, or twelve years to the intense distress of the prisoners. 
During this time, the management of the property was irresponsible. No accounts were rendered and, of the immense sums received, only occasional trifling payments were made to the state. The inquisitor-general had authority to make donations to the inquisitors, and this was liberally exercised in granting them sums of six, or eight, or even fourteen thousand crowns at a time. Commerce was most disastrously affected, for, when a merchant with foreign correspondence was arrested and his property was sequestrated, his foreign consigners or creditors clamored in vain for the goods or debts belonging to them and, as this was a fate overhanging every man, Portuguese trade suffered accordingly. In short, while we may not accept literally the assertion that the Inquisition brought irreparable ruin upon Portugal, we cannot but regard it as one of the largely contributing factors to the rapid decadence of the kingdom. The contest in Rome was stubborn, but the new Christians gradually gained the advantage and, on October 3, 1674, Clement X, as a preliminary, issued a brief reciting their complaints, in view of which he evoked to himself all pending cases and committed them to the Roman Inquisition, inhibiting further action in Portugal, under pain of deprivation of office and other penalties, for all officials, including the Inquisitor-General. Coimbra treated this as a general pardon and, on November 18th, discharged all those under trial, but the other tribunals seemed to have detained their prisoners. It was probably with the object of releasing them that, in 1676, Innocent XI instructed his nuncio to permit the inquisitors to finish the trials, but not to inflict sentences of relaxation, confiscation, or perpetual galleys. If this was the object, it was unsuccessful. The Inquisition was sullen and celebrated no auto de fe between the years 1674 and 1682, save three private ones in the Lisbon audience chamber, in each of which there was but a single penitent. The inquisitorial agents in Rome denied the assertions as to the arbitrary injustice of procedure and the coercion of good Christians to confess Judaism by the terrible alternative of relaxation as negativos. In the conflict of statement, it was proposed that the truth could be ascertained by the examination of the records, and Innocent consequently ordered the transmission to Rome of the papers in some specimen cases of convicted negativos. The Inquisitor-General, Verissimo de Lancastra, Archbishop of Braga, refused obedience on the ground that it would reveal the secrets of procedure. The Pope naturally pronounced the reason to be frivolous, and treated this imitation of Arce y Reynoso's course in the Villanueva affair with greater decision than his predecessor. After meeting repeated refusals, he peremptorily ordered, by a brief of December 24, 1678, that, within ten days after notice, four or five of the prescribed cases should be delivered to the nuncio Marcello, under pain of ipso facto suspension of the inquisitor-general and all his subordinates. If they continued to act, the inquisitor-general was interdicted from entering a church, and the others incurred excommunication removable only by the Holy See, while, during suspension, the episcopal ordinaries were restored to their jurisdiction with full powers. Even this did not break down inquisitorial contumacy, and, on May 27, 1679, another brief formally suspended them, while letters of the same date to the nuncio instructed him to prosecute them and report the result. 
This decisive action at length brought the partial submission that the two processes were sent to the Portuguese ambassador to be delivered to the Pope, but evidently this was deemed insufficient, for the suspension was not removed until 1681, when a brief of August 22nd gave as a reason that the Episcopal ordinaries, owing to various impediments, had not been able to exercise jurisdiction and the prisoners were suffering through the delay. The raising of the suspension, however, was conditioned on the future observance of numerous modifications of procedure, under threat of reincidence of the penalties previously prescribed. The new Christians had especially asked for a change in the rule respecting negativos, but this, as we have seen, was unfortunately an essential part of the system and their desire was ungratified. The changes granted were of minor importance and are interesting only as evidence of some specially iniquitous practices against which they were directed, and better treatment of prisoners was enjoined. Whether these modifications were observed and mitigated the rigor of procedure, whether the Inquisition was humbled and weakened by its defeat in the struggle with the papacy, or whether the material for its autos was becoming exhausted, it would be impossible now to determine, but there is no question that, after its resumption in 1681, the number of its victims diminished notably. The renewal of operations was celebrated by autos de fe held in the early months of 1682, with processions and illuminations and other demonstrations of rejoicing, but, in the nineteen years including 1682 and 1700, there were but fifty-nine relaxed in person, sixty-one in effigy, and thirteen hundred and fifty-one penanced, an aggregate deplorable in itself, yet encouraging in comparison with its predecessors. End of section 35 Recording by Robert Sherman, Jr., Washington, D.C., www.nyckidd.com.